Hi, friends. This is episode 37 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, thanks so much for coming back. We have an incredible series coming up, and it's kicked off by this episode. We're going to do a series called The Judge of Judges, and that judge is all capitals because the greatest judge of judges is God himself. And we're going to take a look at the character of God through a very exciting book. It is definitely one of the books in the Bible that I send people to when they tell me the Bible is boring. There is no way you can read Judges and think it's boring. Well, today we're starting with the very first judge, and I can't wait for you to hear about him. But before we get into that, I want to make sure that you know all of the resources available to you. Go to thebiblelab.com and download your PDF study guide so that you can follow along. You can see some of the language. You can see some of the things that are going on and even see some of the things we don't have time to get to. So head on over to thebiblelab.com, click on the episodes page and get your resources. Now I want you to sit back, buckle up and get ready for another incredible conversation. Welcome to the Bible Lab. You guys ready? All right, here we go. Number one, I am not a superstitious person. I am not a superstitious person. Wow, look at this. The majority of you here are saying yes. It looks like about 98% yes. I have, (laughs) it looks like about almost 2% no. One no with a love it. We're going to talk about that later, buddy. Um, and, and, and Greg, of course, has the maybe card along with several others. We have some maybe cards out there. Okay, so the majority of you say you're not superstitious. You're not superstitious. We'll see about that by the end. Number two, when people sneeze, I typically say, bless you. Once again, about 90, oh, I'd say about 95% yes, no, and 1% maybe, and a yes and a maybe. I have no idea what that means. Help me help you help me. I have no idea what that means. Okay. So, you're not superstitious people, and yet, when people sneeze, you do something very superstitious. You say, bless you. Why do you... (laughs) Dr. Horner says, you want to play it safe. You're covering your bases. Dr. Horner, you have no idea how prophetic that is today, not pathetic, prophetic today, into the topic that we're going to cover. Because although we say we're not superstitious, we do a lot of superstitious things, don't we? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Think about it. Think about the different things, because we're going to talk here in about two minutes about some of the superstitious things people do. But you know why we say bless you? It's from the Middle Ages. When you sneeze, when you exhale, you're going to inhale uh, a, a lot because you just exhaled a lot. And when you inhale, you might inhale dark or evil spirits. And so you bless that person to make sure vile pesky demons out. Your faith healers, every time you say bless you, okay? <laughs> Casting out the demon of the sneeze. Great. That's one of the legends. There are several other legends as far as why they say bless you. Before I get too many emails. <laughs> Number three, most of my everyday stresses are my fault, 
So I don't pray for God to take them away. Most of my, yeah, did you say compound? This is not an English class. This is a theology class. So thank you, David, for playing. Uh, the majority of you are saying no. It looks like about 95% no, 5% yes, and three, four, five maybes. Okay. So you're saying most of your everyday stresses uh, are not your fault. So you don't, so you're, so you're saying you do pray to God for the little things even though it, it's your fault. Okay, I'm trying to figure out. I had a horrible statement. Who wrote that? <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's terrible when you realize in the midst of the program <laughs> that he wrote something horrible. It's okay. Poe, but he's perfect. Number four. When you cheat on God in anger, he hands you over to the devil. When you cheat on God in anger, he hands you over to the devil. Okay, you're answering the way you know you should. Because it looks like 99.9% no's. I had to do a 0.9 because someone put, held up a, a no and a yes card at the same time, just to confuse me. Other than that, I, I saw a sea of no. Okay. We're going to talk about that because many people reading the section of Scripture we're going to go through will interpret the, the words there as, because the people cheated on God in anger, God handed them over to the devil. And many of you who grew up in fire and brimstone churches heard that sermon quite a bit, okay? So we're going to talk about that specifically to see what can we responsibly find within Scripture as far as what happens when you cheat on God, okay? And number five, last one, obedience is the most effective way to win our spiritual battles. Obedience is the most effective way to win our spiritual battles, Oh, see, this is the perfect statement because I have a 50-50 split of yes and no's, but a bunch of purple maybes, and Greg is saying maybe no. He's leaning towards no, but he's still unwilling to be wrong. Great. You're good, man. You're good. I'm, uh, I know you're going to pay me back later. We'll get you a mic. Today we're taking a look, we're stepping into a brand new section of Scripture. It's a brand new series on the book of Judges. It's a 12-part series. We're going to have fun. Most of the time we're going to take a look at the 12 Judges. Sometimes, because the info, uh, info around the judge that we're looking at is much more compelling in the area of looking at the character of God. What does the Bible say about the character of God? And sometimes we get distracted with the character of the judge and so from time to time, we're going we're gonna to take a little detour. We'll still mention why we're, God's character is demonstrated through that judge. But for the most part, we're going to step through 12 weeks looking at the book of Judges. But ultimately, we're looking at the judge of Judges. And the judge of Judges is God. And so remember, what we do in this conversation is different from most Bible studies because we're not asking, what does the Bible show me that I need to do? That's not what we're doing. We're looking at the Bible and saying, what does the Bible show me about the character of God? And in that moment, when you connect with God, no one needs to tell you what to do because instantly you're changed. By beholding, you become changed. And so I want you to stay focused. It's really, really easy, especially as we look through this book of Judges. It's very, very easy to get distracted by the characters of mankind. But we're going to take a look at the character of God. 
And so today, as we step into the very beginning of this series, I want us to get our minds wrapped around to the culture of the people. I'm going to explain in a little bit, a little bit after um, our first conversation here. I'm going to explain a little bit about the um, context, the historical context, emotional context, whatever. But for us to truly connect with the emotion of the people, we have to answer this question. And the first question is right here on your study guide under the Dive Deeper section. It says, what are some of the superstitious practices that you, your family, your friends, or coworkers do? Are these done for protection, good luck, improved health, or et cetera? So what are some of the superstitious practices you or the people around you do? Let's see. Raise your comment or question cards, and we will get a microphone right to you, right back over here. Thank you very much. So for those of us that work in a hospital, you never say the Q word or the quiet word when you're on your shift because bad things will happen. Ah, like what? Like what? Bad things. Bad things will happen if you say quiet. You know, uh, many of you work in a, in a hospital here. You know, in Loma Linda, we, we always tease here. We, we say Loma Linda has more degrees than the thermometer. Um, <laughs> The people here have more doctorates and, and everything. Um, I've noticed something, so maybe this medical community, uh, community can help me out. I've noticed the other word doctors never say is pain. No, they say pressure. There should be some pressure, some slight pressure here. You're going to feel some pressure. Oh, I felt some pressure. I felt some pressure all right. And that pressure felt a whole lot like pain. Felt like a needle jab in my arm. Thank you. Over here. Uh, if Mike or I tell you that uh, we're going to go to trial or that we are in trial, please do not tell us, don't, please do not say to us, good luck. Oh. We, um, like theater people, are performers, and uh, we've adopted theater people motto of please don't say good luck. Say, if you're going to say anything, please say break a leg. Break a leg. Not break a gavel. Break a leg. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> All right. All right, good. Thank you, David. Uh, who's over here? Yes. I know somebody who's a physician that when might be sitting pretty close. Might to you too. might be. Yeah. Um, who, when they're on call at night, if you lay out your clothes on the chair, they won't call. They won't call. <laughs> <laughs> if you're ready. Works fairly often, actually. <laughs> you have a if you have a series of projects that you need to accomplish. Uh, I, being a dentist, I look and I see things I have to do. I always try to do the hardest one first. Yeah. Then it's a piece of cake. And then, and then everything works. Well, the other light little ones don't become bigger. I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we get the phrase, it's like pulling teeth? We can uh, answer that one later. I wouldn't know that. Yeah, yeah, you can. I always wanted to ask a dentist that. Yes. Marilyn. Hi. Well, there are lots of committee meetings here at this institution. Yes, we've sat on one. How uh, we have. And yes. one thing that we've, we've learned never to say is it's a short agenda. We'll oh. probably get out early. Yeah. Never happens. I hate short agendas. It's the longest meeting in the world. Yes, over here. How about the one, it's a full moon? Oh, it's a full moon. Yes. yes. Brings out all you crazy people. <laughs> I, I wasn't speaking about you, ma'am, specifically. Donna. I just have a question of why we eat deviled eggs. Yes. Why do I, we want to be full of the devil? At potluck, I always pair that with angel food cake to balance it out. 
if, if you have a patient that's supposed to die, if you tie the, the corner sheet, they will survive the night. It always works. Ah. I hope you nurses are taking notes. Good. Superstitions. I have a friend um, uh, that every time <laughs> we go under an overpass, we're on that freeway, every time we go under an overpass, he shouts out, earthquake. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing? He says, the chances of an actual earthquake happening when I say it are much less than if I weren't to say it. <laughs> and I'm making sure the overpass doesn't fall on us. I say, can you say it a few seconds earlier? Because by the time that comes down, we're going to be under it. Yes, back here. If you're not ready for trial, do not pray for patience. Oh, yeah, exactly. Don't pray for patience because then you're in the longest line at the grocery store until you stop praying for patience, right? And you're in traffic for days. Exactly. Raul. Sometimes I find myself praying, either in the morning or at night. And after praying, I think it was superstitious because I thought, well, I'd rather pray. I better pray before I go to the office or work or before I lay down, for, you know, for sleep. Mm -hmm. Because if something bad happens, I'm, I would be lost. And I think it's completely wrong in my, mm. the way I do it. What, well, what about if you don't pray before you eat? Ooh, don't that, you, I, I could choke and die. Really bad. <laughs> uh, back home before when I drive through... Uh, bridges, my friends ask me always to honk, at least twice, to ask permission to go through the bridge. <laughs> that's awesome. So you're the guy that's been honking. Okay. I've been wondering every time I get to that bridge. Okay. I used to work in hospice before I started my geriatric care management practice, and we knew that if there was a death, there would be two more. The death's always coming three. Look at the see, everybody? Things always coming three. I heard behind me yes, it comes in three. uh-huh. They okay, can we take that vote again about am I superstitious? <laughs> you guys are either a bunch of liars or you just didn't think about it, okay? Everything comes at threes, exactly. Every, uh, the, that actually makes the top 10 list. Uh, when you look up, ask Pastor Google, uh, the top 10 superstitions and things come in threes is one of the top 10. You also have black cats crossing your path. You also have don't walk underneath uh, an open standing ladder. Don't open an umbrella indoors, 13th floor. You guys realize if the hotel puts you on the 14th floor, it's the 13th floor, okay? Um, there was a, uh, when I was going to college, there was uh, one of the top 10 also is the number 666. And when I was going to college, this um, poor uh, college student, not poor financially, but poor because when her dad bought her a new car and the plates finally arrived in the mail, the last three digits was 666. The first three was H-A-G. Okay, so she quickly changed from HAG 666 to something we can't memorize. Yes. Her punishment was that when they ask her a license plate number, she can't remember. I remembered her old one, though. Great. Very sweet girl and definitely did not deserve that. Great. Back here. Hi. Uh, I've been a private pilot, and I've also been an aircraft accident investigator. 
So whenever we would go private flying, there would always be good prayer, particularly when we were flying over water. We would put on a life vest. But the key thing for me, one time I was flying into Mexico on a commercial flight, and they saw my certifications, and they allowed me to sit up in the front seat. There was a big portrait of the Pope up front. (laughs) (laughs) We do a lot of things superstitiously. A lot of things. And I'm so glad and happy that you guys were open to share, because when we first started the conversation, had we not had this sharing time, we would have all agreed with our very first vote, I am not a superstitious person. But the more we talk, the more you realize we could spend the entire hour going on and on about, oh yeah, and then there's this, and there's that, and oh, when I choose my lottery numbers, which none of you do, I know, uh, there's certain practices and things that you go through. We are very superstitious people. I need you to keep that in mind, because that's human nature. And that same human nature is something that has gone on for generation after generation. And so the people that we're going to take a look at here in a moment, the children of Israel, were not immune to this either. They had superstitions that they didn't break. Because if you break it, you are bringing calamity, you're bringing trouble, you're bringing bad luck onto yourself. I want you to keep that in mind as we open up God's Word and we take a look at this section, the the very first judge we're going to take a look at. And I want you to keep in your mind that these people were superstitious in their own way. We can look back and we can laugh and we can say, oh, how superstitious. But remember, they would do the same thing to us if our generations were reversed and we shared with them all of the things that were Uh, superstitious about and some of the practices that we do because of those superstitions. So keep that in mind as we open up Judges chapter 3, and we're going to take a look at verses 7 through 11, which in the NIV says this, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. I'll give you a little bit of background. Where is this? What's going on? Because we just kind of landed into a, a segment of history. When is this? Okay, the Israelites have already come into the land of promise. Joshua has died. The land has been apportioned to each tribe. They've settled into the land. And if you have time this afternoon, read Judges chapter 1 and 2, which will give you a very quick overview of how we got here. Basically, at this time, The people have not only settled in the land, but now they're just starting to settle in their spiritual practices. Starting to become a little bit more relaxed, 
couple of verses before this, it talks about the Israelites intermarrying with the tribes around them, not uh, non-Israelite people groups. And because of that, they began to adopt the religious practices of the people groups around them. Women, you know how influential you are spiritually on your husband because many of your husbands would not go to church if you said, let's stay home, right? Don't, don't nod your head, please. <laughs> your husband's right next to you. Um, but you know your influence, women. And at the time of this writing, it was no different. Women, you have a very strong influence. Why? Because most of us guys, even though we're hardworking and workaholics at work, we are definitely lazy when it comes to religion. And because of that, and that's a general statement, so don't be offended. No offense, none taken. Um, the women of the surrounding people groups were very influential on the men. We're going to open that up here in a minute when we talk about the Ashers and the Bales, and you'll understand really clearly in a, in a moment. But this is a time span of anywhere, and there's argument within the theological community, which is always exciting, uh, between uh, how long this time period of the judges is. Some theologians say it's 300 years long. Others say it's 400 years long. So I say it was exactly 350 years long, okay? <laughs> Somewhere around 350 years. There's a tough time about the actual start dates and end dates of, of some of these and how long some were and how long there was in between. And because of that, um, it's an average of somewhere around 350-year time period. So that would be like going from today all the way back to about 1660 or 1670. So if we look at our history from the late 1600s until today, a few things have happened. It's the exact same thing for the book of Judges. This is a long time period. And we're going to start toward the beginning. It's been long enough since they've settled into the land that they've started to let things go. Apathy has crept in. And because of that, our scripture says, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So what does that mean? They did evil. If we break down these words... Um, the, the word evil is just evil, so we got to look at the words around it. So what are the other words we have? It says they did evil, then it unpacks it. It says they forgot. They forgot. The actual Hebrew word for forgot is seka. Seka. Not senka. Seka. Which is generally understood as to forget. But in the passive tense, in the passive tense, it would be like you saying they got amnesia. They just forgot. They can't remember anything. They got amnesia. It's more of a passive thing. It happened to you. But in this case, the verb is active, which means it's to disregard or to, take, or to not take into account. In other words, it's self-imposed amnesia. You've chosen to forget. So this evil in the sight of the Lord is that people knew that they should remember some things, but they purposely, intentionally chose to forget to spend time with God, to connect with God, to, to think, you know what? God says he wants to have a special relationship with us. So it's my job to make sure that on my end, I'm keeping a relationship alive. 
And the people had stopped doing that. It's more than just not coming to church, because there's a lot of people that come to church that forget the Lord. I didn't hear an amen, but I know you said it on the inside. (laughs) A lot of people come to church because they're earning their attendance in heaven, right? But there's another group of people that attend church, and they say, I'm coming because I truly want to connect with the Lord. And because of that, I'm doing everything I can to, in a relational way, have a relationship with the Lord so that there's no way we could forget. It's just everything about us. It's infused in every single cell of my body. I'm his, he's mine, and there's no way I could possibly forget. The people had chosen to forget. So why do you think the people forgot God so easily and so consistently? What do you think are the reasons why people choose to forget. Back here. Uh, They also came out of Egypt, and they had all those gods that God wanted them to leave behind. Yes. But just like when Moses went up in the hill, the mountain, they had the golden calf. They, They kept all these things that their environment taught them and they've kept them they didn't get they didn't kill the people that were wicked and were the promised land all kinds of things and so now it's coming back on them you're amazing that's that's beautiful statement most commentators you should feel proud about this most commentators go back to egypt to the exodus and it's the same verbiage i mean it's been hundreds of years later and it's the same verbiage. It's the same thing over again, the same thing that happened uh, when they said, let's turn back, let's go back to Egypt. When they did the golden calf multiple times, uh, when they sent out the 12 spies and the spies came back with the report, it's the same verbiage. They forgot, they chose to forget who they were following and to go back to what was more comfortable, the known. Exactly, beautiful statement. Over here. Uh, Israel was... <coughs> Excuse me, Israel was instructed to not to intermarry with the Canaanites. Yes. So why would they do that? Because they would learn, they would forget uh, about the Lord and they would learn the ways of the Canaanites. We're going to dig into that uh, uh, quite a bit today. So I, get, I want you guys to, to, to remember, we're going there. The ultimate question is, Why? Why would they do that? And we're going to see why in just a few minutes. There was something very tempting that was beyond the strength of most of the men of the tribes of Israel. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Jay and then Sharon. One of the commands that God gave was not to make any reminders of him, not to make any visual images or mm-hmm. figures or, or mm-hmm. anything like that. That's right. That's and why you, we don't use a cross. And and you see that coming yeah. And you and you see that coming back even in the New Testament when Paul goes to the Athenians, mm-hmm. they had collected gods from all over the world, mm-hmm. but they had collected the images mm-hmm. of those gods and mm-hmm. they had covered their bases with the the uh, the one true God. Yeah. By it, an image of the unknown God. Exactly. And on Mars Hill there, Paul goes up to them and says, 
okay, you've made an image. Let me tell you who he is. So he used it for good, but you're right. It's human nature to try to, in some way, make a concrete representation so that we can see it. It, it, the more physical it is, the more we can truly grasp it with our minds if we can touch it with our hands. Exactly. Thank you, Jay. Sharon. Well, when I looked at this, I thought of a very close relative who, with her husband, fits this so perfectly who's forgotten God so easily and so consistently. And the thing that comes to my mind is that they are quite moneyed, mm -hmm. and I don't hold this against them. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if that has influenced them to forget. It could be. Unfortunately, I know too many rich people who have not lost focus. And I also know an incredible amount of people who are middle class who are completely distracted by their lack of wealth. So ultimately, the question is, are you distractible? It all comes down to, are you distractible? And you know this from all the other areas of your life, there are things you will never be distracted from. Your favorite TV program. <laughs> you set that DVR. You set it before you even came to church because you don't want to miss the game. You don't want to miss the show. You don't want to miss the episode. Whatever it is, you don't miss it. You've prioritized it. There is nothing that will distract you from that. Why? It's a priority. There are certain events. Some of you will never Forget your anniversary. The others of you, your wife has to remind you. <laughs> you cannot be distracted from a priority. And so whether it's wealth or the lack of it, if you're distractible, it's because it's not a priority. And so I've seen both sides. And I have to, once again, say a huge hearty thank you to those of you who are of means in this group that have been so generous with the Bible Lab to make sure that you show this is a priority. We have to get the word out about the character of God, and you're not distracted by your finances. You're utilizing your finances to truly promote your priority, which is the character of God. Over here, Toga. I'm not trying to shift the blame, but the Israelites went out from Egypt with a, with a strong leader. Mm -hmm. And after that, Joshua also. Mm -hmm. I, I was wondering why God let, after Joshua, there's no clear leader. Yes. So, I mean, does he know that? Uh, that people will not? Yeah, I guess there's things God doesn't really understand. Um, <laughs> there's things God should know better. We need a strong leader. In fact, from the... From the time of Othniel here, for about 350 to 400 years, we don't have a king, and it's not, it's not until Samuel goes and recognizes, oh, it wasn't David first, was it? There was King Saul. Finally, we have a leader. Now, this leader 
will lead us into the straight path. He will be humble. He won't be self-preserving. He will not get political. He won't get intimidated. If another young, talented person comes up behind him, thank God we have leadership. Maybe God does know what he's doing because leadership seems to pervert God's direction because we follow the leader and the leader is typically not God. That's why we have the priesthood of all believers. That's why it's a community. That's why I'm not in charge of this community. You're in charge of the Bible lab. Because once we follow one person, God is no longer the leader. That's why we're following God, and that's why whenever you say, I like your Bible lab, or I like your class, I always correct you, don't I? I say, drop the Y, it's our It's not mine, and the moment it becomes mine in your mind, you're lost because God is no longer the leader. Because of that, in this time period, there are times that God says, okay, I got to get you back on track, and I got to utilize somebody, and so he sends his Holy Spirit. We see that in this text. God sent his Holy Spirit upon Othniel to do the humanly impossible, to get the people not only back on track, but to get them into a restful place for 40 years. It says the land was at rest. I think they use that word intentionally because I don't think people are ever at rest, but at least the land didn't have to drink up spilt blood. But the land was at rest for 40 years. Why? Because from time to time, God says, okay, you're like sheep. You will follow So I've got to raise up. And it's interesting, he uses the word deliverer for Othniel. He uses this um, several times, not for all of the um, judges that are to come, but about four or five of them. I think it's five of them. He uses this term, deliverer, which is the exact same word that's translated savior. So he rises up saviors to save them from themselves and their own mistakes. A couple more comments, and then I want to share uh, the reasons why that the people were going the direction that they did. Over here, Dave. Well, there's an old um, saying, there's no atheist in the trenches. And, you know, when they were getting it going out of Egypt and then in the, in the wilderness and then conquering Canaan, I think they felt the acute need for God. But maybe early in this section, maybe they were a little more comfortable. Yeah. Well, certainly there was a lot of conflict in the judges, yeah. but yeah. maybe they were you know, just feeling more comfortable and didn't feel that urgent need mm-hmm. at the moment. How many years... Were they under extreme oppression? According to the text, eight years. Eight years. That's the typical length of a U.S. presidential candidate. (laughs) And after eight years, you're like, we need something different. We're sick of this. And it doesn't matter which party. I'm I'm not being partisan here. It doesn't matter which party. You could be totally a Democrat or a Republican or somewhere in the middle. At the end of eight years, you're ready. You're so behind the other guy, simply because <laughs> within that amount of time, you're just like, okay, we see what we're getting. At the end of eight years, these people see what they're getting. I'm going to talk about the ruler and the kingdom that, that takes over here in a minute, but eight years, it's not year one. It's not the first month of, of being under the thumb of this ruler. It's eight years before they finally cry out to God. This shows you their level of disconnect, that it takes eight years for them finally to, as a group, say, okay, God, we're tired of doing it our own way. Extremely stubborn people. 
Back here. Isn't it all also go way back to Adam and Eve? I mean, they were in perfection, and it was their nature to live right, and, and yet they did the same thing. And ever since then, that's human nature to, we don't want to be told what to do, and we, and we can't see God. Where is he? You build a little statue or something, and, and it's visible. It's right there in front of us. Yeah. It's interesting. You brought up Adam and Eve. I, I want to bring yeah. in an extra element here because there is one thing that most people skip over in, in that story. What is the carrot that the devil dangled before Eve? Most of us say, be like God. Read it again because the word is wisdom. Wisdom. It was wisdom that he held out as the carrot. Wisdom seems, seems like a fairly noble thing to acquire. And yet, it wasn't for personal gain. It wasn't because, you know, for any other reason, other, the scriptures say it was wisdom that she desired. And so I think that shows us even good things, noble things, if they're not of God, distract us from God. Exactly. Back here. Jordan. Yeah, I, when I read the Old Testament, I always see a God of community. It's not an individualistic God. Right. When you serve him, you're not benefiting yourself. You're benefiting the community. Uh, it's, it's the promised land for all the people. It's not if you follow God, you pay your tithe, you will get blessings. Right. Nowadays, we look at, at, at pastors who say, if you pay your tithe, you will become rich. I mean, it's a very much a personal thing. Right. So all these other gods, they, they had some type of self-service. Mm -hmm. From what little I know, there were orgies in the temples. It, mm -hmm. was, it was a like you say in the next point, a specific need that you came to a God for. Yeah. It's much easier to say, oh, I want rain, let me go to this God, or I want this, let me go to that God, mm -hmm. or I want to have a good time, let me go to this temple, yeah. than to just say, oh, okay, I need to follow all of these rules, all of these commandments, so that the group may benefit. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's what I find is the biggest issue. Nowadays, we don't say what the group benefits. We say, how do I benefit? Yeah. And then the group is second. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's great, Jordan. Th Jordy, thank you. Um, it's a great transition also into where we need to go. This section talks about the ashers and the bales, the bales and the ashers. And many of us read past that and just think, oh, you know, they're just like, hey, let's, let's give this God a chance. You know, this God, I asked and I prayed and I didn't get my pony. And so I'm going I'm to pray to this God over here. That's not how it was. For the most part, some, I'm sure there was somebody that said, I didn't get my pony. Um, so we need to take a look at what, what was really going on that caused so many of the Israelites to turn to the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, a couple of things you need to understand. The reason why uh, most theologians believe that the plurals are here, the Baals, plural, and the Asherahs, plural, was because they were used uh, during the time of this writing as an understanding of the gods, lowercase g, uh, the gods and the goddesses. But there was a Baal, and there was an Asherah as gods. And they were, uh, most of the 
kingdom nations around them, uh, called them by either the same name or a similar name. Some had some very, uh, uh, you know, uh, variant names, but for the most part, their characteristics were the same. There, there was a lot of borrowing going on in, uh, in all of the nations around them. So the question is, why would they follow Baal when God rescued them from Egypt, and now they literally are in the promised land because of, it, of the inheritance of Abraham? Why? Why would they turn to the other gods? And so we're going to take a, a look at that. Now, who was Asherah? Asherah was the wife of the god El. And she was also, in many of the religious beliefs, she was also the mother of Baal. But in most of the understanding of how do you get what you want from these gods, um, your desire was to, and cover your kids' ears if there's any here, um, their desire was to get Asherah and Baal, her son, to have intercourse. Because once intercourse happened between the two of them, fertility happened on the land. And let me kind of describe what they would do. So here is a typical Israelite hillside. Having a picture here, I'll try to narrate for those that are listening. It's a typical hillside, and you'll read in several places in First and Second Chronicles and Kings um, about the Asherah poles on every hillside and altars next to every tree, and and you read right past that, not fully understanding what they're saying. Here was their religious practice. If you saw a hillside like this, chances are, if it did not have a tall tree there, you would see a long, a, a tall totem pole. And so this totem would be uh, erected right here at the top of the hillside. And right next to it, they would build an altar a stone altar right here next to it. Because they believed that in order to communicate with Asherah and Baal or any of the gods above or below, that you needed to have an antenna of sorts. That's what the Asherah pole was. And so they believed up here you have the uh, celestial realm. Here you have the terrestrial realm in the middle. And down below, the reason why they would bury the Asherah pole deep into the ground or utilize trees with deep roots is because you also wanted to communicate with the underworld because there are gods and deities or demons that you want to communicate in the underworld. And because of that, they would erect these Asherah poles on most every high hillside or mountaintop. And the reason why they had an altar next to it is because you were trying to entice Baal to have intercourse with his mom, Asherah. When they would have intercourse, it would cause the rain to fall, which would then cause the grass or the crops or whatever it was to grow. It would, it would not be dry and arid like the desert typically is. And so the altar next to the antenna was for prostitutes or prophets or prophetess of Baal to have intercourse. And in doing so, the hope was that while they were doing this religious practice, that Baal would look down and say, well, that kind of looks fun. You doing anything? No? All right. Let's do that. And when they would, it would cause the rain to fall, grass to grow, crops to grow. Uh, 
So, I gave you a very brief version of this. Because, by the way, you can also ask Pastor Google uh, to show you images for Asherah poles. And you'll also notice that they're not simply just these totem poles, because they also had uh, basically the uh, travel version, okay, which was smaller carvings. And these would be quite ornate. It'd be carvings that looked very much like a stylized tree. And right in the midst of it, you would see the image of a woman. That's Asherah. And uh, you can even read in a couple of places in Scripture where, um, and we're going to get to some, where uh, some of the priests and uh, people of Israel had actually brought those inside the Jewish temple. And, and it's recorded that those were taken out. Now, some of you who use the King James Version, that's great, but it will translate, instead of Asherahs, it will translate it as grove. And the reason why we know that it's not a grove is what's being spoken of here, is because that word, it, you, we never had a grove of trees inside the temple that was removed. Uh, so we know that they're talking more about these carved images or totems. And so um, ultimately, this is what they're doing. So this answers a very um, critical question. Why is it that the men of Israel, who their very property that they possessed, would go off to the other religions? The easy answer is that Judaism was a religion of abstinence. Thou shalt not. Baal worship <laughs> was about do. And it was about it, it, it like living in the 60s, if you know what I'm saying. Free love. Because the more free love we're having, the more we're going to entice the gods to give us what we need in the everyday. And because of that, even in the time of the Exodus, the gods of the everyday crisis, they learned this in Egypt, the gods of the everyday crisis were the Baals and the Asherahs. And because of that, for your everyday needs, it's the end of your money from your paycheck, but it's not the end of the month. Your everyday need, you need more crops. You need to sell more sheep or livestock. You, you need more finances. You would go to the Baals and the Asherahs, because they were the gods of the everyday. Yahweh was the god of crisis in the minds of the people. When you get to this incredible crisis, you need a miracle. I mean, this is huge. This is for the whole nation. Then you cry out to Yahweh. But God in their theology did not care about the everyday. And that's what they had taught themselves, even though God had proven otherwise with the manna and with all the different ways that he provided for them throughout the Exodus. In the minds of the people, the gods of the everyday were the Baals and the Asherah. As a man, they were much more tempted to go to church to do that. And this is just one of the things. Their temples also had altars. And like what was mentioned earlier, there were sacrifices. In fact, um, uh, about 500 years before Christ, um, no, excuse me, 300 years before Christ, uh, there is on record over 500 infants being sacrificed um, to Baal. And uh, it was a big ceremony because there had been a great drought. And um, all the parents were bringing their infants to be sacrificed, 500, um, simply for one reason and one reason only personal wealth gain. Um, it's just who we are. It's, it's how demented mankind can become when our greed is that high. So, 
It makes sense to me why, with this Asher pole and with what's going on here, why the men were seduced into this form of religion and because of the intermarrying. One day we're going to go through a series on Hosea. You know, it's the story of Hosea and, and his, his wife, Gomer Pyle. I mean, just Gomer. Um, what a great name. Um, his wife's Gomer. What's her profession? She's a prostitute? Does that mean she stands on the street corner? No. We've got to study Hosea because she's a temple prostitute. She's not going to the corner to sell her body. She's going to the temple to make the grass grow. When we study this, you're going to see, a lot of people have questioned, why would God tell Hosea to marry a prostitute? She wasn't a stand-on-the-street prostitute. She was a prophetess of Baal. And God's trying to show, this is how I feel. You guys have completely left me to go to other gods. And because you've left me to go to other gods, I feel like you've totally cheated on me as a married couple. It's not this cheating for money. It's cheating for religious connection to another God. And that's why when you look at his statements here, where it says, verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Raphaim, king. What is the anger of the Lord? Is he just upset because you're not following him? No, he's not upset because you're not going to church. He's upset because you are following someone else. And that other one seeks nothing but destruction for you. These people were not simply apathetic to Yahweh. They were passionate about the Baals and the Asherahs. And every day, they were focusing on, what do I need to do? Because in their superstition, if I do this, I will prosper. If I don't do this, my neighbor, look, the other side of this fence, his fields are amazing. They're green. Look at all his flocks. Whoa, he's had a bumper crop. Look at all this. And look at my side. It's all scraggly and dry. I need to go do what he's doing. It's obviously because I'm not doing what he's doing that I don't have as much as him. And they started following the waves of the people around them to get what they had. And the anger of the Lord is burning. Why? You know this, those of you who've come to the Bible Lab long enough. The anger of the Lord is jealousy. You ever been jealous before? Can some of you remember so far back during that era when you were dating? Got jealous, didn't you? But I spent a whole lot of time talking to that other person. And look what they have. And why do they want to be with me? And you get jealous. The Bible says our God's a jealous God. Why? Because he wants to have a relationship with you. That's why he gave us the 10 wedding vows, right? He wants to be in relationship with you. And so his anger begins to burn. It says he sold them. I looked up the word sold them. You know what it means in Hebrew? He sold them. <laughs> it also means something else. It can be taken also uh, literally as handing them over. In other words, you're going that way here. Let me help you pack. I don't want you to do it because I'm mad. Because I want you. But you want to be there, I'm going to let you go. I will not stop you from doing what you want to do. That's the God we serve. He will not stop you from destroying yourself. But it makes him so mad because his desire is to dwell with you in his house forever. It makes him mad when you decide to walk away. 
but he doesn't stop you. We don't serve a God who will put all this tragedy and all kinds of things in your path just simply because he's mad. He says, fine, if that's your choice, I'll let you go. So he hands him over, and the question is, who do you hand him over to? Really quickly, the name is Kushan Rishathaim. Kushan means Kushan. It's just the first name. But the last name, Rishathaim, Many people aren't sure whether he gave this to himself or his enemies gave it to himself because it's like saying, Kushan, the doubly wicked. <laughs> doubly wicked. It's a bad dude. It says he's from an area uh, that is known as the two rivers. Aram Naharaim literally means the two rivers, which many people, and there's arguments about this, but many people think this guy was so doubly wicked, that he reigned not only up from the Euphrates, where the Tigris and Euphrates come together, from that area all the way down to the northwestern edge of Galilee. Huge area. So many of the commentators who agree that that was his territory say, for that guy to not only rule over that large of an area, but to cause problems for eight years to Judah in the south, was a bad dude. This guy was bad news. Very, very powerful, which tells you one other thing. When God raised up Othniel, one man raised up one man and gave him the power of God, put the power of the, of, of the Holy Spirit upon him. This is a David and Goliath story. It just doesn't get the press. This is even bigger than David and Goliath because it's Othniel versus a kingdom of the doubly wicked. These guys are the largest power, the largest military force at that time. And God says, look, when you finally stop and realize what your path is leading you to, in eight years, they finally stopped and said, okay, we get it. We thought this was a better way, but it's obviously not. They finally cried out to God. And what's God's response? He sends a deliverer. What did the people do? They cried out. Does the Bible say they changed their ways? They, they all started going back to church and they all had a big sacrifice in the temple? No. It just says they cried out to God. And immediately, he's... He's just like you. You're going through a relationship. You're going through a rocky time. You're like, oh, I'm going to give them their space. But the moment they say, I'm an idiot. Why did I ever leave you? You're like, come on, come back. I've been waiting for this day. God says that. And he says, look, you can't do this on your own. You've made it such a mess. I will raise up a leader, a deliverer, a savior for you. And right now, it may look impossible. But guess what? What looks impossible is going to last for 40 years. Because God says, all I need you to do is trust me. As you look at what everyone else is doing around you to get ahead, don't be distracted by that. Because the number one thing I need you to do is stay connected to me. Because as long as you stay connected to me, you're connected to the power of the God. And what can the power of God do? He can vanquish an enemy that everyone says is impossible. And he can do it for a length of time that no one could imagine. It's interesting to see 
that they had peace until Othniel died. One man's faith can make a difference. What difference can your faith make in your community? Yes, we ended with a very powerful question and a really powerful challenge. And I'm taking that challenge this week. I pray that you'll take it with me. What difference can your faith make in your community, even if you're the only one? I guarantee it will make a huge difference. Now, I hope you come back for episode 38 because we're going on to the next judge, and his name is Ehud. And Ehud is an amazing story. If you love spy stories, secret spy stories on secret missions, you're going to love this one. So I invite you to come back, join us for episode 38, and I look forward to spending some more time with you. May God continue to bless you. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.